1: It is our tendency and our temptation to go it alone, as it were, get things done on our own. Meanwhile, the Lord is saying, hey, sit back. I got it. I will fight for you. That's what we'll take a look at next today on Walk Through the Word. Ideas are easier thought out than actually acted out. And this is what Moses no doubt learned as he attempted to take the children of Israel to the promised land. Dragging a family across the wilderness is a hard task indeed. Imagine dragging an entire nation of people. This is Walk Through the Word with Pastor Kent Dresto from North Creek Church right here in Walnut Creek. Online at NorthCreek.org. Great to have you with us as we continue our study in Exodus. Here's Pastor Kent in chapter 13 on Walk Through the Word.
2: The name of the sermon is the Lord will fight for you. And ordinarily, I know that I state the purpose of the passage right up front to give us a point of focus. But this morning, I want to hold the punchline of the text back until the very end, which hopefully will be of greater service to you. Now, by way of review, you know that we actually have a a passage back in chapter 12 that links into this current context on the Passover And so God, when he leads his people out of Egypt, he gives them institutions that they are to be memorializing or remembering down through their history. Institutions that revolve around the central institution of Passover. Passover. And so that's the first institution itself that we looked at two weeks ago in chapter 12 at the end. That gets followed up by the feast of unleavened bread and how it is that that the people of Israel are to observe that particular festival that follows in the heels of Passover. And then Bracketing that festival is the observation of the firstborn son and the rituals involved and the laws involved in that. And we looked at that last week as well, specifically with the fact that firstborn sons belong to the Lord. They were to be passed over to the Lord. They were to be redeemed. They were to be taught all of the things that they're actually about and being about. And then they are to, we are to acknowledge, we closed last week by, by remembering that Jesus Christ is the firstborn son from the father. And what a blessing it was to end last week's message, focusing on who Jesus is in that way. Well, today we turn our attention now to what the Bible is going to bring to us with beginning with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in chapter 13 at the very end. And, and we see here that what I think this is trying to teach us is that God knows the best path forward for his people. God knows the best path forward for his people, you'll see a summary statement in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearby. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now the author, Moses, is turning our attention back to the travel log. He's, he's set the institutions of Passover unleavened bread, and the firstborn son. But now he's coming back to this travel log that will kind of dot the text along the way and give us geographic markers and sometimes even time markers as well in this um, ongoing story of the Exodus. Now the divine author, the Holy Spirit, lets us in on a divine commentary being had though. So don't just see this travel log as just history. See this in verse 17 for what it is that um, is happening within the Godhead itself. I mean, I don't know when you heard the passage read, when it says, for God said, if you asked yourself the question to whom, to whom? I mean, I think this is a a pretty fantastic observation here that that we see a divine commentary on the path that God will take his people on in their flight from Egypt. And the first thing that we want to see here is, is that God doesn't take them on the fastest path. God knows the best path for his people, but it's not the fastest path for his people. And in verse 17, you see that that's acknowledged when it says that he didn't lead them by the way of the Philistines, the normal route, by the way, from Egypt to Canaan. If you can kind of imagine that map in your mind's eye, the the normal road from Egypt to Canaan was actually a major thoroughfare, an ancient travel um, road in the ancient middle near East called the Via Maris, the way of the sea, the way of the sea. And it followed the Mediterranean coast from Egypt to the south, all the way up to Phoenicia to the north. And then in Phoenicia, or kind of like around Samaria, that region that you can imagine in your mind's eye, on the coast, through the valley of Jezreel, it would cut inland inland. Join at Damascus, and then eventually that would connect to all of Asia and then up into Anatolia or Greece. And so this was the major trade route, the Via Maris, that you would expect that God would lead his people on to get out of Egypt. It's amazing to think about this, but if the people of Israel would have gone on that road, the Via Maris, they would have, or the way of the Philistines, as it says here, they would have arrived in Canaan in two weeks. In two weeks. But God led them instead. Not on that expected nearby path. But on an unexpected and much longer path. A path that actually would take them 40 years to get into the promised land with. That's God's action in leading them. He did not lead them that way. Although that was near. But we also are led into not just God's action in verse 17. But God's reason. God's reason in verse 17 as well. God states out loud we guess here to himself that that he wants to make sure that they don't fall back or shrink back from the conflict that they'd be sure to encounter along that particular route. Now I think this happens to be an extremely rare dialogue that God is having within himself. What would be called an intra Trinitarian dialogue. In other words, the author here, Moses, and the Holy Spirit, the divine author, are letting us in, letting us eavesdrop on a conversation that God was having within himself. Now, we have had this happen before, haven't we, in the scriptures? Back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, God says this, let us make man in our own image. Do you remember that? When he says that, who is he saying that to? Let us make man in our own image. He's saying that within the the dialogue of the Trinity. God is speaking not to himself, within himself. And this is so rich and such a rare phenomenon in the Bible that we're coming across here, just like it is back there. So this is fascinating for God said, don't miss how... Amazing that implication is. And of course, you'd expect that God's action in verse 17a and his speech in 17b are united in some way, right? And of course they are. They're actually grammatically, they're united by a wordplay. And it's a subtle wordplay in the Hebrew, but the word for God's action to lead is naham. The word God uses for change their minds, the people will change their minds, is yin So it's very similar And in fact, it's it's meant to look alike and sound alike to connect those two things together. What's the effect of that? Well, the effect of that is to kind of create this ironic twist, an, an ironic contrast between God's leading and his people's desire to want to go back. Back to Egypt. Back to bondage. So God leads his people in a way that prevents that from happening on the wilderness path toward the Red Sea. Now, there's a lot of scholarly research out there, and, and maybe you don't care about this. Maybe for you, you just read the Bible, and, and you, you heard about some stuff about you know, like where exactly did Israel cross the Red Sea, and, and you've heard some people toss out some stuff like, well, it really wasn't a sea. It was more like a lake, or it was more like a little stream. And you've heard that kind of stuff, and you're like, nah, whatever, I don't care about that stuff. I believe it. The Bible says that I believe it. Others of you though, it's fair to say, wrestle with this kind of thing a little bit. Maybe you even come across this. There is a lot of scholarly research and commentary on what is intended by Red Sea. Is it a literal Red Sea or is it the Reed Sea? You've maybe heard that before. Older studies and more liberal leaning want to read Reed Sea here in verse 18. Toward the Reed Sea. But there's newer research that's coming out that actually fights against that and and goes to show us that the Red Sea actually is intended, but the word in the Hebrew for red actually means end. End. Thus, what's intended here is, yes, the Red Sea, but what they would have thought about it as is the sea at the end. At the end of what? Well, the waters to the far south of Egypt back at that time. The waters at the end of the land of Egypt back at that time. Which, of course, by the way, is actually the Red Sea. And so it doesn't mean that it's a different body of water. It is the Red Sea. But we're learning now through some connections with some other kinds of uh, cognate languages that there's actually an implication that what they saw to be was the sea at the end. Now, that's actually true physically at the end of the land of Egypt. But it's actually going to be true figuratively, too, as we'll see in just a moment. So this path is the best path, and it's not the fastest path. But notice also in verse 19 that it's the promised path. It's the promised path. Now you look at verse 19, you're like, wait a minute, now t- time out. Moses takes the bones. Of, what are Moses, Joseph's bones doing here in this passage? And he just kind of seems like I come out of left field. And sometimes the Bible will do that. Sometimes, especially the Old Testament will do that, where you get this verse that just like, pew, It's dropped into the text and you're wondering like, how does this connect to anything? Well, the reality is, is that this, this verse, although seeming to not fit, fits perfectly well in the context because Joseph's bones hearken us back. And in fact, the language hearkens us back in verse 19 to where it says, Joseph made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So the carrying up of Joseph's bones actually are meant to remind the people of God that God has visited them. That's the major point. And that's why this is not out of context. As the people of Israel are leaving Egypt, and they're heading out to begin the journey on, in, the, in the wilderness with the Exodus, Joseph's bones are a visible reminder that God is making good on his promises. He's making good On all that he has promised to do for them. He will not let them down. God has visited you. And he will bring you up out of this land. Joseph's bones. Are even though Joseph is dead. Still speaking. Still speaking of God's promise. Still speaking of the promise. Being held out before them to reach the promised land. So when you put these two things together. What you find out is. That this out of the way path. Is also the path of promise. The fastest path was the shortest path. That's true. But that wasn't God's path. God knew better than to send them on the Via Maris. Lined with Egyptian forts at the border. And behind the border laced with Philistine menace. Their enemies would destroy them. If they chose for themselves the usual path of escape. So God took them south into the wilderness. It wasn't obvious to them. It wasn't pleasant to them. It wasn't directly connected for them, but it was the best plan because it was God's plan. He would take them the long way home. You might be walking a path that you think seems familiar to all that right now. Far from the path that you had chosen for your life. You find yourself on a very different path today. I mean, you had lined out your life, and it was, it was fast, and it was pleasant, and it, was, it would have taken you directly to where you were, to where you thought you needed to be. You had done advanced planning. You had done saving. You had done strategic work. Everything was lined up and lined out, but God then led you into a wilderness path. Your life has maybe since slowed down. Your life has maybe not been as pleasant. Your life has been more indirectly moving around from where you thought you were going to be. But, but listen, here's the deal. God has taken you to the place where you are. And you need to believe that God's path that he has for you, that you're on, is the best path for you. Some of you might be sensing this more than ever because of our shelter in place. But will you believe right now that God's path is your best path? If you believe that, then we're going to learn in just a bit from God's people about how to embrace that path in life. God knows the best path for your life. It might not be the fastest. it might not be the prettiest, but know this, his path is accompanied with his promises that can assure you of his leading you down the exact path he has for you. Indeed, God does know the best path, but notice that God is guiding you forward on that path. He guides his people forward on that path. He doesn't throw them on the path and then leave them to themselves. Verses 20 through 22 show us that God then leads us from the front. He pulls us ahead. Now, ordinarily, we would want to be careful not to simply read ourselves into Old Testament passages, right? We want to make sure that we do our due diligence in the Old Testament context back then before we jump to New Testament applications or even current applications today. We don't want to make flimsy, cheap connections from the Old Testament to our own lives. But to be honest, this passage is highlighting things about God that are reflections of his character. And because they're reflections of his character, we're able to to have that be reflected into our life more immediately than maybe otherwise would be the case in different passages. These principles of who God is, these attributes that we see God manifesting here reflect who he is, not just in this time, but all the time. And we can be thankful for that right now. As we look at this particular section of verses 20 through 22, we see three things about who God is. God is guiding his people forward by leading them, by leading them number one. And by the way, God always leads his people. So this is not just something that's describing who God is in this context. This is something that's describing who God is in every context with his people. He always leads his people forward. We see that in verse 21, the the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. This is God's leadership in our lives. This is when we talk about a need for God to guide us in our life. This is what we are asking him to do and who we're asking him to be. It's a, it's a, It's a dynamic that we see here in the text that becomes a principle that we see in God's character that we can bank on for our own lives today. That God will lead us where he is taking us. Related to that is that God is a light for us. At the end of verse 21, a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night to give them light. That's a major, that's a major um, area of biblical study. The idea that God is light here. He's provides them light from the pillar. And you should notice that this isn't that the Lord gave them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. No, God is the pillar of cloud by day. And he is the pillar of fire by night. This is him. In their very midst, leading them on, going before them, but lighting the path before them too. Providing protection for them as well. He leads us. He's light for us. But also notice he lives with us. Verse 22. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God was always there. He took them down a different path, but it was the best path because he was on that path with them. Wouldn't you listen? Wouldn't you want to be on a more difficult path? If you could be assured and promised by God that he would be there with you on the path, leading you along the path, lighting your way as you take the path. Wouldn't that be a far better path anyways than him letting you choose your own adventure, which you would want to make be the easiest path, the fastest path. The prettiest, most convenient, most pleasant path to you. Wouldn't you want this exact dynamic in play in the people of God's life back then or even in your life today? Of course you would. If you stop and think about it, God's path is the best path because He is the one who guides us on it, He is the one who lights our path in it, and He is the one who lives with us as we take it. So, what a blessing. To see this dynamic of who God is along the way. Scholars would call what's happening here in the pillar uh, uh, God's manifestation of His glory, His Shekinah glory, a visible representation of God Himself. And I love that. God is so good to His people, even as He takes them near the wilderness. Will He still be good to His people, though, in chapter 14? God is going to guide His people forward. And sometimes in life, guiding people forward who are God's children means that God is going to guide them backward. Chapter 14, verses one through four, you see that God is guiding us backward. He guides his people backward. In fact, you could say that, that there is one place forward in, in the march and the journey of the Exodus and now three places backward. If you look at verses One and two, the Lord told Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn around. That's what the the sense of the word is. Turn around, Moses, make all the people put on their blinker and turn a U-turn and go back the other way. Now you would think that that would not be the best path forward. Generally speaking, the best path forward is not backward, right? I mean, in anything in life, but here, in this part of the Exodus, God has them turning around and going back where they came from, and what this does, as the Lord directs Israel to encamp now at the third spot. Right, the first spot um, was where they were at in Sukkoth. and then they left and they went to Etham. They left Etham, and now they're encamping here. You can see in front of Pi HaHarith, HaHaroth, between Migdal and the Sea, in front of Baal Zephon. Three different fa- uh, place names. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. And so, this is the third encampment, the third place. And all of these places that are mentioned, kind of together, though, are steps backward. Now, don't forget that even Etham, the second spot, was on a path not only less chosen, but less desirable. But that's okay. We've already talked about the fact that God has given them his promises and his word concerning the fulfillment of his, his word and his promise. Testified to in the carrying of Joseph's bones up to Canaan. They will get to Canaan. They have God's word of promise to that effect. They have God's presence as well in the pillar of cloud and fire. With God's word and God's present, presence with them, what other evidence... Do God's people need to believe that God will protect and provide for them? By the way, you have God's word and God's presence as well. What more do you need to trust that God will continue to protect and provide for you? But now God is going to throw Israel into the pressure cooker. The heat's going to get dialed up now, man. This is the, these little place names that maybe we don't really understand are the pressure cooker for the exodus. As God has mysteriously in the life of Israel directed them through three places that move them backwards. He tells Moses to have the people encamp in front of Pai HaHaroth, which scholars are kind of divided about where that location is, but it seems best to understand that the meaning of the term is the mouth of the canal. The mouth of the canal, which kind of moved north just up, like right touching the, the entrance to the, the northern part of the Red Sea. Between Migdal and the sea is a second place name. Migdal means tower or fortress. And there were many Egyptian towered fortresses lining this section of the country. They have found archaeological ruins to suggest that that was true. So presumably this was a Migdal that was nearby. Pa The third place, Baal Zaphon. We can't really nail down either. But what we can say is that its name implies that Canaanite religion, Baal worship was alive and well, not just in Canaan, but it had already come down into Egypt. It had been imported into Egypt. And, and this apparently was a bit of an epicenter for Baal worship. A little microcosm of the struggle to come with this particular false religion. The word "encamp" means to encircle. And this is, is exactly what the Hebrews did when they would set up camp. You can read the book of Numbers to see how they would arrange themselves encircled around God's presence in the tabernacle. But what's important here is that this location absolutely puts their backs up against the wall. Their backs, man, are way up against the wall. The sea is on one side of them. The desert wilderness is on the other side of them. God has led his people down a long path to a place where they were basically sitting ducks. For Pharaoh. So God's people are up against the wall in verses 1 and 2. Which means that for God's enemy, he is licking his chops in verse 3, man. He is licking his chops. Look at what God says that Pharaoh is going to say of the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Oh man, God foretells that Pharaoh is basically gonna like almost wax poetic here. Verse three almost sounds a little bit like a song. It reads and and, it almost kind of sounds a little bit like a poem. Pharaoh is waxing poetic. He's almost got a smirk on his face, a a Cheshire grin as he ponders the, the fact that Israel has basically wandered themselves straight into a trap. They've lost their way and they're stuck against the Red Sea, man. Israel is gonna be easy prey. And Pharaoh is going to be licking his chops when he finds out where they've camped.
1: Well, thank you for joining us here today on Walk Through the Word with Pastor Kent Dresto, the broadcast ministry of North Creek Church here in Walnut Creek. You can join us each weekday as Pastor Kent opens the Bible and teaches directly from God's Word. For more information about this ministry, we invite you to visit our website, walkthroughtheword.com. That's walkthroughtheword.com. If you're in the greater East Bay Area, we would invite you to visit us here in Walnut Creek as we seek to make disciples who worship God, walk in love, and witness to the world. You can find service times, directions on our website, the church website, northcreek.org. And if you've been encouraged and blessed by the teaching today, we invite you to help support this ministry through your prayerful giving. Simply visit our website, walkthroughtheword.com, or our church site, northcreek.org. And then join us next time as we again walk through the word with Pastor Kent Dresdo. Walk Through the Word is the ministry of North Creek Church here in Walnut Creek.